0: Welcome to Context Matters, I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to geek out with people from a whole variety of backgrounds about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects, of which we do not even all agree on, but it's so fun to have the conversations. So pour yourself a drink, grab some food, and consider yourself invited to this virtual podcast table. This week we are joined by Dr. Vince Bantu, who is the Assistant Professor of Church History and Black Church Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also teaches for an African-American seminary called Meacham School of Hymenote, which provides theological education for Black church leaders. Now, ever since I read Vince Bantu's most recent book, I've been sending out emails and text messages to former students and current friends, telling them to make sure to have this book on their shelves. You'll see why it is so important in this episode. But real quick, before we get started, I have to say thank you to all who are supporting this podcast, whether through officially subscribing to the show, submitting reviews, or contacting me on social media. I really appreciate how you're connecting with me and giving me feedback. I'm learning a lot by the comments that you are sending my way, so please keep it up. A special shout out to people like Dick Landis and Mindalyn Young. They, along with the rest of the Patreon team— Even those who are trying to remain anonymous, but I know who you are and we still need to do dinner together, covers the production cost of these episodes, but also further help improve the quality of the show. So thank you, Patreon team. Now, without further ado, I would like for you to meet Dr. Bantu, who started by describing the role religion had in his childhood, and he talks about the powerful influence his mom had on his life. You are going to love this conversation.
1: Well, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I would say religion played the, the decisive role in my childhood. Um, I, I think I might have had like a an atypical story. Okay, I, I grew up in a, uh, I love this podcast because like, for me, like, being from St. Louis is so vital and important to my to my history. Like when people ask me about myself, I just end up talking about St. Louis a lot and like my story. <laughs> um, and you know, St. St. Louis is that's where I was born and raised. My my parents, grandparents, great grandparents, everybody's from there. All my people. That's my home. That's my that's my community. You know, it's probably the most racially segregated city in the world. Uh, maybe, 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 but definitely in the United States. I mean, just in terms of how dramatically and consistently segregated it is like there's a street that cuts the whole city in half. And everything on this side is black and everything on that side is white. And it's also very financially you know, disparate as well. And so I, I grew up, I grew up about a mile North of that line and I went to school on about a mile South of that line. And so, um, so my school I went to was in this like really rich, white Jewish neighborhood, but then the school district was mixed black and white. And I used to drive every day to get there. And I would just like, it, my school was two miles away. And in those two miles, like I went from one planet to another, like every single day, it was going, wow. going from like dilapidated homes and, you know, predatory lending places and no grocery stores, no hospitals. And then all of a sudden I'd be in elementary school and surrounded by mansions and but I remember, you know, you asked about religion. And the first thing I thought of was like, you know, when I remember being in second, third grade at that school, and most of my friends were either black or Jewish. And I remember, I'd be trying to evangelize and share the gospel with some of my Jewish friends that I used to hang out with every day. And I'd be trying to tell them about Jesus. And I'd be like, Hey, man, you, you believe in Jesus? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior. And they were like, No, I don't know. I, I, my parents told me Jesus isn't really like for us, you know? And I was like, No, man, you got to believe in Jesus. Come on. And like, and then we go play like basketball. And like, that was that was like, that was second and third grade. That was elementary school for me. So no, I, yeah, I, I came to know Jesus as, a, as, as a young age and I was extremely passionate about evangelism. Yeah, from the <laughs> beginning.
0: Does your family come from a Christian background or was it just your family or was it just you as a child who became Christian?
1: Yeah, it, it it really wasn't a, a Christian family, like, and, and it still isn't, you know, a lot of my relatives are definitely not like living the Jesus lifestyle, <laughs> if you know what I mean? But, um, <laughs> but, you know, my mom, it really kind of started with my mom, like, you know, my mom was, uh grew up like in St. Louis also, and she just had a miraculous testimony where it was really, it was really her, where she started to follow Jesus, you know, at, when she became a young adult. And so, you know, she, she was raising me and my brother, You know, culture was also a thing that was always interesting to me because again, I grew up on that in that line where I was seeing black and white every day, like kind of traversing those lines. But even in my own home, because my mom is white and my dad is black, and so I was always thinking about cultural difference. And my mom was actually the only white person in the whole neighborhood that we that we grew up in uh, in the west side of St. Louis. And she really, again, was one of the first believers. And so she was raising my brother and I in that neighborhood by herself. My parents weren't together, and I was in a single parent household as a kid. And she. Uh, you know, she just presented the gospel to us, but she was like, This is between you and Jesus. Like, it's your decision. You don't, you know, just do it because I do it. Like, it's between you and Jesus. And so I, uh, I just, yeah, I had made that decision. My brother was, you know, we were in a gang neighborhood and my brother was kind of doing some of that stuff. But, uh, but I just made that decision early on to, to put my faith in Jesus. And, um, yeah, so it was really like, uh, it was really kind of through the witness of my mom, but, but my dad and my, my brother and my sister and my cousins, everybody else was, they were doing the street thing and just kind of live in that street world. But, um, but yeah that was that was really kind of how I initially really heard the gospel.
0: Wow. What kind of church were you involved in then growing up?
1: Yeah. So, so that's part of the thing too. Like, you know, so, you know, we, uh, like I said, we were living in, we were growing up in the hood on the West side and, you know, my mom was raising my brother and I, and she was, you know, she was struggling and she just kind of like came upon this, this church, you know, it was a great church. It was like a small non-denominational white middle-class type of church. And it was also about just two miles from our home. Like it was not far away, but it was like in a different planet. Like it was actually, it was actually right by Washington university, uh, which is like the kind of top. You know, yeah. Uh Top school, so everything around there is mansions and rich neighborhoods and yards, and yard. space, exactly. Yeah. Yep, and huh? and pet grooming stores and coffee <laughs> right. shops and you know like and then you know and and again you just go two miles north and and it's a whole different story. And so this church we grew up in, they used to come. Actually, they used to come across that line and were like, you know, they had like an urban ministry they called it, and they used to come up and like round up the the hood kids like myself and bring us to church. And they were nice people too. They helped my mom out. When when she was trying to pay the bills and raise us by herself and they were just, you know, so they, she just started coming to that church and, and that was, and they, again, they came around her and really supported her in a lot of ways when she was trying to raise us by herself and, and she was struggling, she'd be working nights, you know, at the hospital and yeah, So they just really helped out a lot. And so that was the church I really grew up in. And they, again, they really loved on me and my mom and my brother uh, in a real hard time and, uh, and were really there for us in a lot of ways. Um, and so i really you know I have a lot of love for that church that i grew up in um but that's also kind of a big thing that that really kind of launched me into like a lot of what i do as a scholar and 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 as a pastor because because again like that was my context of Christianity. And that was my context of church. And so right. as, as as much as I love uh, th- these people in this church, there were still like a lot of ways in which, you know, that was, I was growing up in my neighborhood. That was my friends. That was, that was my world. That was how I kind of, my neighborhood was kind of how I identified myself. And then I would cross that line to go to church. And so I was, every time I would cross that line, I would think, oh, I'm going into this rich white neighborhood and that's where I go to church. So I just kept right. associating church and Christianity with that culture. And there was a lot of ways that like the people in my church. You know, as much as they love the Lord, they just kind of indirectly and sometimes directly kind of presented the gospel to me as like a: if you want to be a good Christian, you'll be a, a Christian the way that we white middle class people are Christians. So I just kind of kept associating that, even as I grew up with that. And and it's funny because so because of that, I always actually felt really wrong about just embracing my culture, like whether it's the style, the clothes, the language, the music, the just the you know. I always felt like everything about it was wrong, and mm. I. Always Always felt mm. like like a bad Christian for being who I was, and and mm. so when I felt the call to ministry, I felt I felt the Lord called me to ministry when I was like seventeen, and and that was right around the time you know I started thinking about school, and that's how I ended up going to Wheaton College because I I just was I wanted to go somewhere to where I could study the Bible, and it was at that moment where I felt like oh, well, if I'm going to go into ministry, then I got to get serious about this now. And I can't have, in my mind, I was thinking I can't have one foot in the world anymore. And so-
0: Oh, meaning like you kind of associated your own cultural identity with being- quote like in the world
1: exactly and and to be fair you know there was some truth to that like you know because i used to be you know i used to i used to grow up like fighting all the time and you know be in the streets like you know just like uh you know kind of living in like a violent kind of way and you know that's just part of growing up in the hood and that you know that part for example was like you know yeah i should i should change that but you know again it was like a baby with the bathwater kind of thing like it was like everything about who i was yeah. yeah, and 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 like I even remember trying to bring my friends with me in my neighborhood to my church, and they'd be like, "Nah, man, I'm I'm good, I'm good. Like, I, I don't want to. I'm good on the acoustic guitars, you know. I don't want to go camping in the woods. I don't, you know. I'm, I'm 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 good, you know. And like, and so, and I was just like, I and I was like, kind of like in my mind, subconscious, I was like, yeah, I don't really like it either, honestly. But you know, this is what I have to do to be a good Christian. And so at that time, and I I threw away all my all my Tupac, all my Biggie, all my you know, all that stuff. And I just started listening to Michael W. Smith and like oh, and no. Sandy Patty <laughs> and, you know, like Twyla Paris and, and, you know, all this content, cause that was the music that the church people, I had no <laughs> concept of like gospel or Christian hip hop or nothing. Like that was my context. And so I was like, I gotta, the, and I didn't like it. I was just like, this is what I have to be to be a good Christian. Um, and so again, it was a baby with the bathwater kind of thing. And, and I, and it wasn't really until actually I started, I remember when I went to, you know, when I was under. undergrad. Grad at Wheaton, like I started becoming more like introduced to just a broader Christian world, other than just my church. You know what I'm saying? And so like I remember my freshman year, Richard Twist came and spoke. You know, he's my late uncle that's transitioned, uh, you know, uh, mm. into glory. And he wrote a great book called Rescue and the Gospel from the Cowboys. But he came to Wheaton and Spoken Chapel and he did like a Lakota dance and drumming. And he was talking oh, about man. following Jesus the way he made you and not reject. And he was just talking about the history of Native people feeling like they oh, have to man. reject who they are to be a Christian. And, you know, mission schools and how they would discipline the Native people if they spoke their own language and, that's right. and you know, all yep. that stuff. And so I was just, that spoke to me and I was like, man. And then I started getting introduced to like Christian hip hop, like the cross movement. And I was hearing their songs about kind of how just the stuff about like thinking that my, my wave cap or my backwards hat or whatever is like unpleasing to God. And like everything about who I am is like, is, is, is unpleasing. And I just connected with that. But then like to see brothers from the hood that are like following Jesus, but still embracing their hood culture. Right. That was like, I had never seen that. I I had never, you know, I had no context for that. And that was just so, that was so empowering in the, in the scripture that really kind of all brought it together was from Acts chapter 10, when, you know, God uh, was preparing the first Gentile believer, Cornelius, uh, and the, you know, the prophecies about, you know, the, the you know, all nations being blessed through Abraham yeah. was going to be brought to fruition, but he had to prepare Peter in order for that. And he was telling, Telling Peter like, hey Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was like, No, I'm not I'm not touching anything that's unclean. And God told Peter, Don't call unclean what I have made clean. And it was that particular passage, you know, my freshman year of college, where I had realized, like, wow, that's what I've done. I have called my west side Saint Louis urban black culture, I've called myself unclean. And God has actually made it clean. God has said that, you know, the hood is part of huh, like right? my people. And and so anyway, yeah, that was that was kind of what <laughs> what brought me out of that.
0: How did you make that transition? Because, I mean, not to be unfair to Wheaton, but it is known as a fairly white, affluent school. Mm-hmm. How did you find role models there to help you kind of grow into your adulthood and embrace your identity?
1: Oh, man, that was that was a huge kind of and it was yeah, it was an ironic but godsend providential thing. Because, again, like I hit that I hit that, you know. I hit that phase that I was in of like really just really living into self hating. I mean, I mean, Sydney, I'm talking about, I tried to perm my hair and make it straight oh, no. and I like dyed it blonde. I like got rid of all my, oh, I'm, I'm, no. I'm dating myself a little bit now, but I, I got rid of my FUBU and my cross colors and my guest <laughs> jeans and my, my Carl Kanai and my Jabos. I got rid of all that stuff. And I started wearing all this Abercrombie and old Navy and cargo pants. Cause again, that's what the white boys in my church dress like. That's and right. that's what they look like. It. And so I was like, yeah. that's what I got to look like where, you know, wearing pants with sandals and all this other kind of white kind of dress, wearing like shirts with thumb holes in it and sleeves for no reason. Like just all that kind of stuff. Like I'm like, <laughs> that's chokers and all that stuff. I'm like, I got to be like a white boy. And so when I went to Wheaton, I was in the mentality of like, I've arrived. I made it right. I'm in white suburbia. And and Cindy, I had I was looking back. I I, I left St. Louis. I left the hood and I did not look back. I was like, I'm gone deuces. Like I'm out. I am never going back to the hood. You know, I'm tired of getting like robbed and this and that. It was a mix of like, again, geography, ethnicity, and, and religion, because it was like, yep. I've made it to the people who do this the best, the white suburban American evangelical. This is where I'm, I was kissing the floor, uh, you know, in my yep. heart, like, yeah. and, and it's so ironic that like God, you know, in my self-hatred, God brought me to the <laughs> the evangelical Mecca specifically to at that place. Tell me again, Vince, you have called unclean what I've made clean. And he Mm. used, like you said, he actually used people there. And I want to give a shout out to Brian Howell, who's still a professor of anthropology at Wheaton. I used to go to his office and I used to just like sit with him and that brother right there. That was a godsend to me, white dude, like who was really like a professor of anthropology. And I was taking, I was a minor of anthropology there. And I would just take classes with him. And I was just so fascinated with, you know, issues of culture and race. Like I was so, here's the thing, like my senior year of high school, when I was still in in the middle of that, of that self-hatred thing, I went to my first Urbana conference and, you know, I was all about missions and sharing the gospel, you know, but I went there and I was so angry at Urbana. Like I, it was the first time where I heard people talking about race and ethnicity, racial reconciliation, all that kind of stuff. And I was like 18, senior high school and I was on my way to Wheaton and I was mad because I was like, why are these people talking about race so much? They shouldn't be talking about race. It's not about race. I thought this was a missions conference. Y'all shouldn't be talking about race. You should just be talking about the gospel. The only color that matters is the blood. Blah blah. blah. I was speaking <laughs> in the same way that my church had raised me to think. And here's the thing, Cindy, was the fact that I was honestly really jealous of, of all the people that are better that were talking about it. it was really what it was. I didn't think that because as a biracial black person growing up in the hood of St. Louis, growing up in the in, in the axis of racial and ethnic and economic difference, I was always obsessed with thinking about difference and culture and how that matters and how that affects mm. our faith. But I was told, "Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Stop thinking about race." So I had just internalized, "Oh, I, I just need to stop thinking about it. I need." Yeah. I was telling myself, "Stop thinking about it. It has nothing to do with it. All that matters is, is I'm a Christian, right?" So when I saw Great. Christians of color talking about it, I was mad. But from like a Jealous standpoint of like, I want to be able to do this, but I don't think we're supposed to. So I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna right. dismiss what y'all are doing. And when I was at Wheaton, I was like, really being kind of more discipled by people like Brian Howe. Another shout out to you know my brother Dante Upshaw. Uh, he was a sta- he was a staff member at Wheaton as well, and he also really was the one that really kind of helped. He would just discipled me uh, in a major way. And yeah, God brought people at that place to show me that you know yeah, it's a nice place, but actually where I was from was you know Dante was also a brother that worked at Wheaton. He was from you know, but he, he grew up in the hood in Atlanta and had a similar journey. And he really kind of discipled me, you know, through that in a major way. And actually, uh, that was when I really felt this strong sense of like, number one, I have really, again, called something unclean that God has called clean. So mm-hmm. I really kind of, I went back and I rebought a lot of that hip hop and R&B stuff. And I, I got my old clothes back and, and <laughs> yes. I was like, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be me again up in here. And I was like, I like went to the whole other extreme and I became like a, before it was black lives matter, before it was called woke, i became I was like walking around Wheaton's campus, like the, like a little Malcolm X, just trying to, you know, talk about, cause I, cause I, you know, I had felt like I, it, my first reaction was like, actually I felt really angry. Like I had felt like, you know, I've been, I've been hoodwinked. Like I've been bamboozled. Like I've been, yeah. I've been told that I need to like leave who I am at the door and, you know, just like be a, just, just a Christian, like whatever that means. Right. And so, yeah. and so like I was going deep and I was like, I'm gonna be who I am and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna embrace my culture to the fullest. And that's really what kind of, yeah, that's, that's really what kind of just instilled in me this, like this, you know, as I began to see the what, and I honestly, I thought back to my friends who were, you know, in my neighborhood, when I'd be like trying to bring them to church and they'd be like, nah, man, I, I'm good. I can't do that. And I, and I started to think about, man, like how many people, you know, have not really just kind of, uh, really given their lives to Christ because of how it's been presented to them. Right, and because right. of the way it's been presented as, exactly. a, as a choice between, you know, your people and becoming, you know, a follower of Jesus and like Absolutely. how that's just an unbiblical distinction. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so, yeah, that's really kind of um, really at the heart of um, really just what I'm all about.
0: I'm going to jump in just real quick right here in the conversation. We are about to take a turn in what we focus on in the conversation. And so I just wanted to jump in and say that you should go out and buy a book. It's called Race and Place. And David Leong, who is the author of this book, is going to be on the podcast in two weeks' time. It is such an important conversation, like you just heard from Dr. Bantu, this idea that we wrap up race into elements of our theology all the time. And Dr. Bantu and I are going to get to this later in the podcast and next week as well. What are the stories we tell? How do we tell them? And what happens when we don't tell certain stories? This comes up again when we bring the conversation into our very modern, urban context. So please mark it on your calendar. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast. You do not want to miss those episodes. Okay, so... Back to Dr. Vince Bantu and his study of the early church and why it is so important to bring in these conversations about people who are early church contributors who maybe are not the normal church fathers that we always talk about. I love it and and leads me very nicely into this idea of, before we really dig into the history and church history, can we talk a little bit about the modern significance of this conversation? Because, and you've already touched on this a little bit, but potentially people are not aware that in modern day, there's a danger of Christianity being perceived as the religion of the white oppressor right? Or a religion of Europe, which then spreads through colonialization. Mm -hmm. So how does that perception of Christianity act as a deterrent for people of color?
1: I mean, yes, that's a great question. I mean, because honestly, Cindy, like, you know, even I mean, even when I was a student uh, in Christian college, like I was a theology major and I, you know, really all I was educated on was the theologians of like of Europe and, you know, yeah, of, like right. the, the Roman Empire, the the Greek and Latin yeah. church fathers and the European church movement. And I mean, the way church history and theology is taught, it's basically like, you know, it's basically just like a like a like a tour of the great white men of history. Um, yeah, almost and,
0: like Europeans were the only ones that had any ideas.
1: That's right. That's that's right. And and I mean, you know, like, you know, and in just so many ways. I mean, that and then even like, you know, the way that like Biblical and theological scholars and commentaries and biblical studies, like done by white men, is seen as like the best, right? I mean, all of my professors, the readings, all the books were written by white men. So that just kind of exacerbates this idea that, like, oh, like white men are in charge of this whole thing. And, you know, the schools, the denominations, they're run by white men. And, you know, and then, and, and, and when women or people of color have something to say, that's like, oh, that's the woman perspective. Oh, that's the black perspective. Oh, that's the <laughs> right. Hispanic perspective. But when it's the white male doing it, and, oh, no, no, that's just theology or that's just. Jesus, There's no, you know, there's no, there's no context to that theology. There's no, there's no specification, you know, and and it's just, it's it's just normal. (laughs) Right. And that's that white normativity that gets in. I mean, we see a picture of a white Jesus, nobody thinks twice, but you saw, you see a picture of an Asian or a black Jesus. Then it's like, wait a minute, that's, that's odd. And it's like, well, you know, why is that odd? But the Jesus that looks like Thor isn't odd. Right. When that, (laughs) you know, we look at Israel in the first century, that's actually more odd, but you know, like that's the, yeah. I mean, so it makes total sense. Why? Why people see Christianity. I mean, we could just go down the list. We were talking about Native Americans and mission schools, but like whether it's that or whether it's like, you know, the history of, you know, colonial missions in China and in India and in Africa, like, you know, the the way that Christianity came into so many places in the seventeen, eighteen, nineteen hundreds 1900s was through, you know, hand in hand or side by side with colonists, you know, and with like conquerors. And so it makes sense why people are saying, you know what, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because you guys <laughs> looking at Christians, y'all Tell your history through the prism of like white men and it came from them to every, to people of color. So yeah, it's, it's a white Western religion. I don't want anything to do with it. And it, that makes total sense. And that's really what, honestly, I was starving and hungry for that. And, you know, we were talking a minute ago about Gordon Conwell, and, and really when I had graduated and I, and, and I felt called to go to seminary, I was like, man, I, I really want something that's diverse and that's really going to prepare me to like do ministry in the hood context where I feel called. And it was, I remember when I went to Gordon Conwell's urban campus at Kume, I remember I took a class, uh, my first semester, semester, semester I took a class on early African church history and it was a tour of Egypt. And I was just blown away. And I was like, wow, I never heard any of this stuff. Like, and I was a theology major. I never heard about any of this stuff. Like, this is, this is crazy. And it's all like way before European colonialism, man, the gospel has been in Asia and Africa and all these places. And it just gets, it just gets no mention and it gets no kind of representation in theological education. And that's when I was like, man, I got to go and, 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 and learn that stuff. Because I think if more people knew about that, then, you know, like what you were asking about this perception of Christianity being like a white man's religion or like a Western religion at its core, you know, that would Really helped to, yeah, to change that perspective. That people still, you know, like you said, even even right now today, uh, that perception is very, very alive and well.
0: And it's it still gets under my skin that you have to be in an urban campus to have a theology class that is looking at and thinking about those things. Right? They're not in the normal theology classes. It's like the elective theology class that only some people have access to. It's the same with like feminist theology or womanist theology it's it's kind of the other side issue not the not something that is deemed appropriate to speak in the you know a survey of theology mm-hmm. for some, for whatever reason mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so is this how you got into church history was as you were taking these early egyptian texts and theologians is that what kind of really woke you up to Church history, and I find it interesting because you did your PhD in Semitic and Egyptian languages. Mm -hmm. It's not even like a PhD in like biblical studies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's Semitic Mm -hmm. and Egyptian languages. So, is that how you ended up um, really focusing on church history?
1: That's exactly right. That's that's exactly how. Because, I mean, like I mentioned, when I was in college and I started really getting woken up to the fact that, oh, I can be me and follow Jesus. Like, I can embrace my West Side St. Louis culture and people and context. And it actually it actually even uh, enhances my identity as a Christian, my understanding of the scriptures. And like, I started just getting really into like books uh, and Christian resources on identity and race and racial reconciliation and, and missions and just co- contextualization and theology, all that. So I just started drinking that up. But the more and more I read it, you know uh, the more and more I just, you know, kind of, you know, felt like there was something missing because again, like you said, the, these conversations are always seen as electives or add ons or, you know attachments and in the same kind of way uh when we talk about history we always talk about things like contextualization or post-colonial theologies or, or contextual theology is like a modern thing, right? Like that's a modern right. thing that came in the modern yeah. world, but you know, the ancient biblical studies in church history, that's just, you know, that's like, that stuff is frozen in time almost, you know, and like right. they don't have like, like they didn't have context, you know? And, and so that's what, when I took that class, you know, that's, I got, I came to Gordon Conwell as an undergrad, I mean, as a seminary student to like, to, learn theology, but in a more contextual way for the hood. And and again, yeah, it was when I took that class uh, in Egypt. That's when I was like, oh my goodness, like this is the missing piece that I've been looking for because uh, all I love all the missiology and all the urban ministry and all the racial rec books I was reading. But I was like, this is all kind of like in the modern time. This stuff right here, though, this stuff is fire because that stuff will just close the loop because now it shows that actually, you know, Christianity, I mean, this is what I mentioned in my book, but like, you know, a lot of those same missiology books, I, I feel like there's actually inadvertent ways that they even exacerbate a white normative telling of Christianity, because they'll say things like, well, Christianity became a global religion in the in the great missionary century, as they call it, or whatever, or in the global expanding, right? Like, like uh, you know, like people talk about, well, nowadays there's more Christians in Africa and Asia than in North America and, and in Europe and stuff, and that's when it became global, and I'm like, well, let's be careful. Like, yes, let's celebrate kind of the you know expansion of the gospel and also the you know ways in which Christians of color are finding ways to break out of Western cultural captivity as as my friend soon Ra calls it let's celebrate those things but let's also not forget that Christianity ain't becoming nothing it's not becoming right. global it's always been global and if we will understand that more that will help to change the the perception that it went from the west to the rest but actually yeah. no it came from Jerusalem in acts 2 to the rest <laughs> at the very funny. beginning and it continued you just spread in every direction, and those those churches are still around even to this day. So yeah, that's that's exactly uh, kind of from there what launched me into like you know I did a THM at Princeton real quick in church history, but then yeah I went to Catholic U and yeah like studied Semitic and Egyptian languages because that department that was like one of the best academic programs that would that would specifically let me focus on what I wanted to focus on, which was, I want to look at the early Christian theologies that were in other languages and in other contexts, other than Greek and Latin, other than the Roman Empire, you know, looking at like Syriac and Ethiopian is like Coptic, Armenian, even Christian Arabic, even Chinese, like all these theologies and even languages like that I'd even ever heard of, like Sogdian. I'm like, what is that? That's like a Central Asian kind of Silk Road nomadic trading language that Christian missionaries use to spread the gospel and wrote theology. And I'm like, what is this? Nobody ever told me about this, man, yeah. like, you know, like Genghis Khan and all him, they, their wives were Christians. And some of the people, they let missionaries go throughout, you know, the Silk Road oh, way is before. That right? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, oh man, the the Mongolian Empire, they the most of those rulers in the Mongolian Empire, most of their wives were Christians and m- therefore most <laughs> of the Mongolian khans were actually raised by a Christian mother what? and they allowed Christianity to thrive and spread all over Asia in the like
0: wow. 1300s. I didn't know that. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, right, how even the context, not only the historical and geographical context, but the language context matter And language can be a barrier then where we just don't even bother exploring someone else's history or writing or thoughts because we don't know that language. And so we stick with Greek and Latin because those are a little bit more common in mm-hmm. this biblical world.
1: That's exactly um, so right.
0: this kind of this ties in a little bit with my next question which so when we look at especially modern fiction or these kind of th- there's like a growing Kind of common idea that Constantine invented Christianity when he (laughs) allowed it to be uh, the legal religion of Rome. But by that time, Christianity, like you said, had already been global. So, what evidence would you point to to say that by the time of Constantine, Christianity was already a world religion?
1: Yeah, that, that is a great question, because, yeah, that, that's something that that I definitely, I mean, not only as a scholar, but even as a pastor and evangelist, that, again, like, my heart is really for the hood, and, you know, there's so many different religions, you know, in the in the urban context, you know, Hebrew Israelites, Kemetic, you know, five uh, percenters, all these different religions that are really unique to the hood that, uh, you know, that I, I just love having dialogue with and, and sharing the gospel with, and that's a very common idea among many of these different groups, and, and, and other groups as well, like you said, that Constantine invented the whole thing. And so again, I mean, we got to look at the first few centuries way before Constantine that, I mean, first of all, I think we have to, you know, teach them that in the Bible, like Jesus himself said that he was God, right? When he said before Abraham was, I am. Uh, and when he calls himself the son of man riding on the clouds, like that is a very Hebrew Semitic way of saying, I'm God. Like, I'm not just like a dude, I'm God. And like, you know, he said it and he actually said it not in a greco-roman kind of way but he said it in a uniquely hebrew kind of way uh, and great. so the bible itself claims that he's god but also christians after the time of the new testament clearly but before Constantine, clearly believed that he was god you know whether we're talking about tertullian in north africa who is an african theologian who was actually the first one to use the word trinity or whether we're talking about people like ignatius uh or in in or justin martyr who lived in the near east or whether we're talking about people like irenaeus of Lyon or clement of rome or clement of alexandria like all of these yeah. different theologians and Afraha, the first Persian theologian who didn't even live in the Roman empire. Uh, So again, we have to look at that. The fact that like, actually, even before, for example, before the council of Nicaea, which was like kind of presided by Constantine and people say, oh, that's the first church council. I'm like, no, see, this is where we have to decolonize our history. That's not the first church council. That's the first Roman church council. And so we have to be very careful that we don't always look at Western or Roman church history as normative, because guess what? The Persian empire also had Christians and that was the enemy of the roman empire and they have christians from the very beginning from the beginning of the church it says medes and elamites uh, and persians were present at pentecost and we have we have right. firsthand on the ground evidence of churches in persia by uh, by a, a traveler named berkius already in the in the 100s and then the first church council in persia was actually even before the council of nicaea the council of seleucia was in 315 even before the council of nicaea so the <laughs> persian church had its own councils that were completely separate from the roman church councils that they they were doing their own thing. In fact, even on top of that, in the 200s the roman empire was a hostile place for christians they were persecuting right. christians right right and so how, how you know uh and it's precisely because of christians belief that jesus is the only god and that they're not going to sacrifice to the roman gods and all that and that's why they were persecuted because they didn't want to participate in the in the roman nationalistic kind of idolatrous uh make rome great again religious nationalism in in the roman empire and the christians <laughs> were holding it down for the true gospel of jesus christ but here's the thing is that in the persian empire at the same time in the 200s christians were actually much more safe and they were allowed to thrive and and, and you know and were uh, they weren't being persecuted in the 200s in the persian empire but they were living side by side with jewish people and zoroastrians and and Manichaeans and other religious groups as well and they were thriving in fact some of the christians who left the roman empire left the persecuted Roman Empire would come into the Persian Empire, and yet there were Christian churches that were still distinct ethnically between what they called Nazraie, which was like more of the native Persian churches, or they called them Christians, like Christianos, which was like the Greco-Roman Christians that came in from the Roman Empire. So again, there was already, and again, I mentioned Afrahat, you know, he was born and he became a Christian and lived before the time of Constantine, before the Council of Nicaea, and again, he was clearly an Orthodox Christian that believed Jesus was God. So there's just so much evidence from way before Constantine that, yeah, that proved that, you know, there were Christians all over the world in different places. I mean, again, India, there was, I mean, there was already evidence from the 200s of Christians in India, you know, South Asia already in the 200s, possibly even the first century, but no later than the 200s, again, well before Constantine, where you saw evidence of Christians in the subcontinent. And so, yeah, it was, it was everywhere way before, way before Constantine.
0: If you would like updates about what I am doing, you can join me on Instagram or Facebook at Narrative of Place. I'm also on Twitter, although I don't check it very often. So if anyone wants to help me manage a Twitter account, just let me know. And to be among the first to hear about the educational and food and wine trips to Israel and maybe Turkey, I'm hoping, cross my fingers, depending on COVID, you can sign up for my newsletter at my website at narrativeofplace.com. And of course, you can join the Patreon team with all the fun perks like sneak peeks at the chapter of my upcoming book, which I'm hoping comes out in January, but we will see. Spices from my favorite guys in Israel, normally when I actually get to go to Israel, and access to online teaching courses. This is actually coming out soon. So if you want to join the team, there is a link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much for bringing your curiosity to this virtual table. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all the music you hear, and I adore his work. I look forward to our conversations every single week. So until next week, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.